Spring into reading this season with the Biblio Lifestyle 2024 Spring Reading Guide. In this season's guide, I've handpicked 21 of the best new books and I've organized them across six categories. So whether you're looking for a romance novel that will give you a happily ever after, a thrilling mystery to keep you guessing, or an immersive historical fiction book, this guide has a book or three or seven just for you. Now, if 21 books sounds like too much for you, there's a minimalist reads list in the guide, which includes a list of six must-read books from across genres. But wait, that's not all. The spring reading guide also includes fun recipes, spring activities and lifestyle tips. So head on over to springreadingguide.com and download your copy of the guide. That's springreadingguide.com and download your free copy of the 2024 spring reading guide. So download your free copy and discover your next favorite book. Happy reading! Welcome to The Reader's Couch, a podcast that brings you lively conversations with some of your favourite authors and bookish personalities. Over here, the couch is always booked, but I've moved some books to the side table and fluffed some cushions so I can welcome a guest or two to come lounge with us. Today on the couch, we have Eliza Jane Brazier. She's an author, screenwriter, and journalist who you might know from her debut adult novel, If I Disappear. But she's here to talk to me about her latest novel, Good Rich People. Stay tuned. Southern historical fiction novel to keep on your radar is The Saints of Swallow Hill by Donna Everhart. Set in North Carolina and Georgia in 1932 during the Great Depression, readers are transported to turpentine camps buried deep in the vast pine forest. In the novel, we meet Ray Lynn Cobb, who after performing an act of mercy on her husband must leave town to keep herself from going to jail. So she disguises herself as a man and heads to a turpentine camp in Georgia named Swallow Hill. While at the camp, she meets and takes a liking to Delwood Reese, a drifter who's come to Swallow Hill hoping for his own redemption. And Swallow Hill is no easy haven. And together, they try to make the camp better for workers. But for Raylin and Dell to have a future, they will need to confront their past. The Saints of Swallow Hill by Donna Everhart is a transportive and captivating story of friendship, survival and love that's equally heartbreaking and heartwarming. The Saints of Swallow Hill by Donna Everhart is being published by Kensington Books and it's a captivating southern historical novel you really don't want to miss. Hi 
readers, welcome again to The Reader's Couch. I'm your host, Victoria Wood, and here on the couch with me is Eliza Jane Brazier. She's an author, screenwriter, and journalist who you might know from her adult debut novel, If I Disappear, which is a twisty thriller about a true crime fan who turns detective when her favorite podcast host goes missing. It's a personal favorite of mine. But she's here to talk to us about her latest novel, Good Rich People. Please welcome to the couch, Eliza. Hey, Eliza. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And that's so sweet of you to say that as well. Thank you. I loved, loved, loved If I Disappear. So it's a real treat because I love Good Rich People now too. (laughs) So super excited to have you here. So yeah, your latest book, Good Rich People, it's now out in the world. Readers can get their hands on a copy. I mean, on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling? How excited are you? I'm definitely excited. It's just weird because I think that I kind of like stay out of stuff. Like I don't like really read reviews, you know, like obviously I guess I see posts and things. So it's like I'm excited, but I'm also like you're kind of removed from it. I feel like (laughs) once I start getting like responses and stuff, I, I mean, you know, that's like the fun part. So absolutely. Absolutely. So I want readers to hear it from you. Tell us about your novel, Good Rich People. And what can readers expect when they pick up this book? The easiest way to kind of explain is it's sort of like Parasite meets Ready or Not. It's about sort of like income disparity. So there's this wealthy family in Hollywood who, like out of boredom, play this game where they invite self-made success stories to like live in their guest house. And the game is to sort of try to ruin their lives. And then on the other side, there's this woman who has, you know, grown up in poverty, sort of like lived in poverty her whole life and who now is actually like experiencing homelessness. And she sort of by accident ends up in the guest house and they don't know who she is and she doesn't really know who they are. And this game sort of like plays out and it has kind of explosive consequences. (laughs) I would dare say definitely (laughs) explosive for sure. But I want to know, like, what inspired this idea? What inspired Good Rich People? I mean, give us some behind the scenes details on your thought process and just the spark for this novel. Well, so to be honest, it actually a lot of it is kind of like inspired and sort of like fueled by my own experiences. So I lived below the poverty line for like 10 years, actually in London. So in England, and I also have had like sort of brief experiences with sort of being like homeless, like living out of my car in Los Angeles for like a few weeks, and then also in England for like a brief period, similarly to Demi in the novel. And so a lot of it initially just came from that and like kind of having, it was almost like therapeutic the first few drafts, because a lot of Demi's backstory is based on nonfiction it's kind of like my experiences and sometimes like my own like frustrations. It was kind of just like a way for me, I think, to work through that. And then on the other side, I've also had like experiences interacting with like extremely wealthy people. Like my late husband was a musician. So he would sometimes play at like these super fancy houses or, you know, whatever it was. And so I kind of took some inspiration from that, like, especially like, I don't know, like posh people in England, it's kind of a Mm. different sort of level of, I don't know, there's like a different level of snobbery. It's like extra snobbery because like not only are they rich, but they also come from like these storied families. And having that interaction and juxtaposition when I was like myself struggling. So a lot of it just came from that, you know? 
Right, right. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I know exactly what you mean. It's a different level of... Yeah, it's an extra level because you know how it is in England. Like it's not just about money, right? There are certain families where you also have to have like that whole, you know, the Lord, the Earl, whatever it is. It's definitely more a classist society. That's what I'm saying. Like it's okay for you to have money, but if you don't have that history, you know, it's just, you're kind of separated. So there is that divide. So this book, Good Rich People, it's primarily narrated by Lila. Tell me about your thoughts on giving Lila this big role in the storytelling and just Karen and Demi kind of see each other in a weird way. You know, initially, like with the first couple of drafts, I felt like that it was too kind of just depressing and maybe too personal. So I later kind of added the game element. And I think that's when Lila became a bigger character, because for me, it was like to introduce some of like the, I guess, like, quote unquote, fun element of the book and more of like the black comedy element. But what's interesting about Lila is like when I wrote her, like I kind of thought in my mind that, oh, this is someone who wants to be, you know, she wants to like be a good person. Through the process of talking to, like I've spoken to a few studios and production companies about this, like, and eventually we sort of like sold the deal. But I was, I remember I was talking once to one producer and he was like, oh, you know, what do you think sort of, what do you think drives Lila? And I kind of had this answer that I said, and he was like, no, that's not it. He was like, what it is is she wants to be loved. And I, it was really interesting because it was like, when I wrote her, like, I didn't think of it that way, but I was like, you know what, you've actually given me insight into the character. And I think that you're right. I think like a lot of what drives her in a way is she wants to be loved by her husband. She wants to sort of like be seen and accepted and she can't really find that in this sort of like rich world. So I think that that was kind of interesting because it was like an insight to the character that I didn't really have, but I was like, yeah, you're totally right. That is there. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And then there's Margot, who's like a whole monster. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about Margot. So she's the extremely wealthy, like sort of like matriarch of the family. And she kind of, I think, thinks and sort of understands that that they're different. Her and her son, Graham, right, Mm -hmm. are sort of like different and not really in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think she kind of like sees and accepts that. And that's part of the reason why she sort of instituted this game, I think, in a way to like keep her son maybe occupied to like sort of satisfy. I guess they have these sort of like dark urges. Yeah. So she's just like, I think she's actually a really interesting character. And so we're doing like, we're, I'm going to be working on the TV show and I'm really like excited to get to like dig more into her and what actually like makes her tick, you know? Right. Right. I would love to see that because, you know, she's like that monster-in-law to Lila, but her and Graham are almost like partners in crime in a weird way. (laughs) With the book, it's from Lila. You know, you only see her from Lila's perspective and or from Demi's. It would be interesting to like explore what, you know, I don't know, the other side, you know, is there a side? <laughs> she does love her dog. So that's, you know, she's not all bad, right? <laughs> awesome. I'm really intrigued by Margot. So that's part of the reason why I really wanted you to talk about her. Cause yeah, I think she's a character to watch, but perfect. Cause we're getting now into your writing life. And I'm curious, how long did it take for you to write good rich people and just pull the whole story together? 
I guess I kind of slightly alluded to this, but it's kind of a weird thing about this book is that I wrote, I mean, my poor editor looked at three completely different versions. And so it was over, you know, it was over 2020 that I wrote it. And I, I wrote one version that was sort of all right. And then I, then I rewrote the whole book again. And then it was getting towards the sort of deadline of when I needed to be handed in, in a way, like, which is kind of a year before publication. So I had a month to kind of like work on her edits. And I felt personally, like I didn't feel that the book was strong enough. So I kind of was inspired to come up with this, have this whole sort of game element, right? So I messaged my editor and I was like, so I, you know, I'm not really feeling this version of the book, but I want to change it to this. And I sent her like this one line pitch, just saying, you know, the whole idea of the game, right? Which wasn't in the original book. And she was totally on board. So I basically rewrote the entire book in like four or five weeks. <laughs> Literally every word except for except for Demi's backstory. That was the only thing that didn't change. So all the characters changed completely. Like I took elements and kind of the framework from before. But yeah, mm-hmm. I rewrote the whole book. But like the cool thing, I guess, about that was because I was writing it so fast, like I kind of couldn't, didn't have time to like lie. And I just had to kind of like, be myself and like use my own voice and kind of like my sense of humor and everything. So, I mean, I think it worked out well, but it was a definitely a different process. <laughs> I hope I don't repeat ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I loved this end result. So I'm kind of thrilled to hear that, but wow, four weeks, that is wild. Yeah. Wow. Right before Thanksgiving, man, it was crazy. Oof. Okay. So I've read online. I mean, you've said this, you know, you're in California, you're developing If I Disappear for Television. What I want to know is how did you juggling, you know, working on this while also writing a novel again, and now to hear this four weeks stint, it's just, it's insane. How? So I can work like pretty fast, I think. So that's like helpful. The weird thing about like working on like a TV show, this is like some insight, (laughs) especially in the early sort of stages, you're working with people who are so incredibly busy and who are probably working on 50 other projects. I'm not even kidding, like minimum, right? A studio, someone, a studio executive will have hundreds of projects that are just underneath them, right? And a, a producer, even in like a small production company will probably have like 50. So what that means is that they will sort of pop their little heads up out of nowhere and be like, okay, we're, we're going to do this now. And you'll write, you know, whatever your pitch or your outline or your script, send that to them. And you re- usually won't really hear from them again for like a month. Mm. And that's probably like considered fast. <laughs> so it kind of makes it easier to balance because it's not this like it only becomes like this super intense process when you kind of go into if, if you're going to go into production. And then it would be like, you know, if you had a writer's room, you'd be working seven days a week and never stopping. But in the sort of before development period, it's usually like very slow. And I think people are kind of surprised by that. But it's really because they are doing so many things. <laughs> right, right. No, that makes sense. So what would you say is the main difference outside of obviously the timeline and working with different people? How is developing for television similar to or different from writing a novel? And I, I already sense the novel bit is solitary and where television is more collaborative, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's kind of interesting is that, you know, if I am writing a novel, the only person I really have to please is my editor. 
If I'm writing a TV show or a film, I have to please, usually there's multiple production companies on a project and there's probably like five to 10 people in that production company who you have to please. And then there's, you know, a studio, which will have another three or four executives that you have to get through. So you're having to deal with like multiple people. And, you know, oftentimes people don't agree, like they don't want the same thing. There's a lot more constraints like to when you're making a story. And then I also think the thing about like when you write a script, it's very like sparse. So you think, oh, that's easier. It's less words. But actually, the difficulty in that is that you can't like hide flaws as easily. Like if I'm like a good writer and I can write, I'm like being so honest here, but if you can write like a beautiful sentence or something, you can sort of distract from maybe like the motivation was weak or the character was undeveloped or whatever, because it's like, oh, this sounds pretty. But you can't do that on a script. <laughs> it seems like it would be easier, but I think there's, it's actually, it's just a different skill. It's not the same. It's interesting. What would you say is the most difficult part then of your creative process? When it comes to novels, though, what's the most difficult? I honestly think that one of the hardest things is to get through that period where something is not good. So like when you first write like an initial draft of a novel, it can be like a mess and it, it doesn't make sense or this is bad or whatever. And you have to be able to keep going. And it's really hard, I think, not to get like disheartened and be like comparing yourself to finished novels and being like, this isn't good enough. I'm not good enough. You have to be able to get through that because every single book goes through a phase where it's terrible, <laughs> you know? And so I think there is like an element of like this sort of mental fortitude. Like you have to be able to stick with something even when it's bad. Right. That makes sense. Okay, so I mentioned If I Disappeared in my introduction and throughout the interview so far. However, you also previously wrote YA novels under Eliza Wass. So how would you say it was transitioning from YA to adult when you jumped into If I Disappear? Like, what are the similarities and the differences? And also, are you going to dip your feet back into the YA field? So yeah, I wrote YA. Wass is my late husband's name. He was actually English, Alan Wass. So I wrote those probably like seven years ago or something. But you know, the thing is, someone else asked me this question recently, and I was thinking about it. And the truth is, you know, those books are like thriller books as well. And I don't think that I maybe perhaps I should have, but I don't, I didn't really approach it any differently in terms of like being like, oh, I'm writing for teens. So I need to like, you know, sort of change, you know, whatever it is. It was really, honestly, I think just really similar. And maybe like perhaps that, <laughs> perhaps that wasn't good, but I don't know. But yeah, no, I, I don't have any plans to go back into that. I don't know if I feel like, I feel like kind of more comfortable in adult, to be honest, because there is like, you know, my first book, The Cresswell Plot, it has like incest and murder, you know what I mean? And this is my YA book. And it's like, I feel like maybe I fit better in the adult category for now, just because I don't know. You don't want to start sort of thinking about having to censor yourself or not, you know, talk about what you want to talk about, I guess. Yes. No, that makes sense. Absolutely. Okay. So going through everything you've been through, both in life and publishing and writing novels and now working on screen, if you could tell your younger writing self anything, what would it be? I think honestly, a big thing is don't compare yourself to other people whenever I started out, like you, it's hard to like, I guess, find the line between like being inspired and motivated by people and like thinking that you need to do the same thing. 
So I think that sometimes it's like you'll get writing advice and you'll be like, oh, I need to do that because that has worked for this person. And if something's not working for you, then you don't have to do it. You know, don't get sort of like hung up on these things, like even like word count goals, or I need to do this every day, or I need to do, you know, I think it's really important to just try to find out who you are and how you work best, you know, and and like what kind of storyteller you are and not feel that you have to be anyone else but yourself. Right, right. Absolutely. Okay, Eliza, let's get into your reading life. I mean, we're here to talk about good rich people, but I want to know what you're reading. I know my listeners want to know what you're reading. So share with us the last book or books that you read that you now would recommend. So I just finished reading a book by Ellery Lloyd, which comes out this year. They wrote People Like Her. So it's like a husband wife team that write together. And this book is called The Club. And it's about a private members club. And actually, the female partner of the duo, she worked for Soho House. I think she maybe still does. So it's like she has like this inside. I mean, when you read the book, you feel like it's nonfiction. Like it almost reads like a Vanity Fair article, you know, and it's about like them opening a private members club on this island, you know, over a weekend and how it just all sort of like goes wrong. But like their writing style is just so is like a news article, you know, it's so detailed and it's just really cool. And then also this year... Jessie Cusitanto has her next book in the Aunties trilogy coming out. Mia P. Mansala has her next cozy mystery. Uh, Nikesa Afia has the sequel to Dead Dead Girls, which is called Harlem Sunset. So these are like all books that are like I can like highly recommend. (laughs) Awesome. So we also love, in addition to books and authors, we love bookstores. We're big supporters of local indies. So I ask all the guests on the show. So of course, I'm going to ask you, share with our listeners some of your favorite bookstores. So we're for the release, we are doing events at a few independent bookstores, including Warwick's in La Jolla, which is like this cool, like kind of like very like La Jolla is like this beautiful area. It's like this, this just lovely independent bookstore kind of close to the ocean. And then we're also doing an event at the Poisoned Pen in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is like, they're like a huge supporter of authors. They do all these events. And honestly, like, I really admire that because it takes a lot of work and you don't have to do that. You know, you can just sell books. Like, I just think that's a really, a really cool way to support authors and also for authors to support bookstores. The last one is one kind of local to where I grew up. It's called Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego. And they just have like a kind of a really cool vibe, super friendly, like kind of into sort of like fantasy sci-fi, but they, you know, a little bit of everything at the same time. And it's just a really, really great bookstore. Awesome. So getting back to your book, Getting Back to Good Rich People. I mean, you've done your job as an author. You've written the book. You've given it to us. I'm here loving it. I'm telling everyone listening to get their hands on a copy of this book. But what are the reactions you're hoping for or thoughts you're hoping readers might have? I mean, me personally, I'm hoping they're entertained. But I want to know. (laughs) That's so funny because that's literally the word that you just like stole it right out of my brain. I think that's like number one. Like you want, especially right now, things are super hard. You want people to be able to like escape, be entertained for a moment, just kind of escape into a different world. But also I think for me, obviously, because some of it does come from like personal experience and just because 
I think it's so important. I mean, just to kind of think about wealth disparity just in the world and what's happening. (laughs) I think it's getting worse and worse all the time. And it's definitely something that I think we need to all sort of be aware of and, and how can we actually help or make a difference. And yeah, just being aware, I think that people have different experiences and that informs who they are as people and trying to, I think, be more loving and understanding of that. Right, right. Absolutely. Eliza, thank you so much for coming and just talking all things books, reading, and of course, good rich people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Reader's Couch. You can find out more about the show and submit your questions for our guest by visiting our website, thereaderscouch.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Couch Is Booked. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, and take a few seconds to leave a rating and review. Next week, I'll be back with new guests, more books, and some fun games we can play. But until then, stay lounging, stay reading, and whenever you're in doubt, go straight to your local bookstore or library. Thanks for listening, and happy reading.